Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church on this blustery, cold Sunday. And even though we may not like snow, you have to admit, God knew what he was doing when he uh, created nature and all its beauty. So today is uh, Sunday, November 14th. Today's scripture is from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Remember and keep the revelation I gave through my servant Moses, the revelation I commanded at Horeb for all Israel, all the rules and procedures for right living. But also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to clear the way for the big day of God, the decisive judgment day. He will convince parents to look after their children and children to look up to their parents. If they refuse, I'll come and put the land under a curse. There's a good chance you have never come across this phrase before, but you've probably all used them before. They're called thought-terminating cliches. There can be benign ones, even helpful ones, in recognition that you are never going to convince the other person that you're right, and they're never going to convince you, and you want to maintain relationships. So you'd say things like, let's agree to disagree. Okay, that's a pretty benign one. But more often than not, thought-terminating cliches are not used in a kind manner. Instead, they are used to shut down the conversation, and that then the speaker gets to feel morally high. Such as, you know, me standing there telling you that traffic circles are not only safer, but they're more efficient than traditional four-way stops with red lights. Yeah, I'm not really going back into traffic circles again. But my point. And then someone responding to me, well, I don't know about that. Or it's just your opinion. The idea there is it shuts down my argument immediately by saying that I just think about that. It's just my opinion. I have no real facts or no real anecdotes or anything that would back that up. Or saying that perhaps my point of view just doesn't matter. They're not very kind things to say. Now, if you ever really want to make me mad, take something that's already rather unkind, like a thought-terminating cliche, and put it in a Christian sense. You know, mix our faith into it, and you will make me mad quick. Because there is one thought-terminating cliche that I hate more than any other. And every time I hear someone utter it in a conversation, I want to scream. And it is this one, or variations. God never changes. Or Jesus, or the Bible. I've never heard anyone say Holy Spirit, but you could probably apply it there. Look, I don't disagree at all with the premise. The premise is perfect. God never changes. Hebrews 3.8. The Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord God, never change. Premise is perfect. It's the subtext 
It's the way it is used because the subtext is this. I know God's will. I know God's will better than you do. I am God's representative, and I am here to tell you, you are heretical. Be quiet. Oh, I hate that so much. I get why people... Uh, I hate that so much. <laughs> Sorry. Jumped ahead. I want to let you know that Jesus himself actually warns us against this kind of move. It happens in Matthew 18, this move in which someone raises themselves up to be God's authority here on earth. Matthew 18 warns us that there's a problem in the community. You are to go privately to the person, then you're to discuss it with another person, and then take it privately. And then if there's still a problem, the choice is not made by the single person who has the problem with the other person. The choices made by the entire community coming together purposely and prayerfully. Authority does not, does not lie on one, but the body. I get why we use them, though. Thought-terminating cliches are an easy way to get out of a conversation with your ego intact. You know, I, I don't have to listen to you. I can walk away. That's what they do. It's the adult equivalent of the child. Na, 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 na. To, to ignore or to avoid using thought-terminating cliches means that you have to entertain the thoughts of the other person. You have to listen to their words. It means digging into the problem and looking for an answer. After all, Faith and walking in it calls us into constant conversation with ourselves, with others, and God. It calls us to critique our own beliefs and to ask ourselves, are these beliefs God's? Are these things God has asked of us? Or are we mistaking our own selves, our, our nation, our culture, our families, our friends, or even the people who stand in pulpits and tell you things? Is it their faith, their beliefs that we are mistaking for God's. So, yeah. But there are those. There are those that it is their job to challenge us, to be the ones that we want to say, I don't know about that. The ones we want to walk away from, we call them prophets. Okay, yes, prophets, we often think of them as future tellers. And there are future teller prophets. In fact, we're going to encounter one of them named Zechariah today. Daniel, we're going to mention him too. The thing you can tell a future prophet, future telling prophet, is they always have dreams. Because that's how God talks to the prophets when it comes to something that's coming about. He has a dream. Except for when Daniel literally reads the writing on the wall. Because there's literal God writing on the wall. But for the most part, the reason that prophets are, we call them future tellers, is because they realize what we are doing now. They realize the problems now. They see them, and they say, look, if you keep doing what you're going to do, here are the consequences. It's like telling a four-year-old, look, the 12-year-old dog just wants to go take a nap. She doesn't want to be chased. She doesn't want to be touched. Just let her go take her nap. 
If you keep chasing her, she's going to snap at you. Does the four-year-old listen? No. To be fair, if you're reading through the Bible, almost nobody listens to the prophets. And you know what happens? The dire consequences they warn of happen. And that makes them future tellers now. I will point out there are two times, two times in which people listen to the prophets. Today, Malachi, who's going to appear for just a minute, or no, I'm sorry, not Malachi, Haggai, will appear for just a minute. They listen to him and they go build the temple like he told them to. They don't listen to him fully and the temple's not as good as it should be. The second time is Jonah, which they actually listen to him and they do what he says for at least a generation or so. And I want to point out that the only people who listens to God, who listen to God's uh, prophet in the Old Testament are also the people who are quite fine with skinning kings alive and nailing those skins to the gates of the castle, of the cities they conquer. Put that in perspective. They're the only ones who listen to God's. Anyway. So that's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who sees the problems in this day's world and says, this is how you change it. There are 16, 16 prophetic books in the Bible. 17 if you want to count Lamentations, but it's a book of poetry with a lot of prophecy built into the side of it. But there are 16 main prophets. So we have Jeremiah, longest book in the Bible, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel, they're the four majors. Then we have the 12 minors, which is why I have this here. Hosei, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We're coming to the time of year where all of a sudden we start seeing their verses in every church because they also foresaw something else. It wasn't that they knew exactly how the Messiah was coming, but they knew who God is. They knew the character of God, that God doesn't abandon people. So he said, if you keep doing this, God is going to lead you to this punishment. But God won't leave you there forever. God will come and gather you to him again. Somewhere in the future, the covenant will be remade. God will send a Messiah. But here's the thing. We always skip straight to that end part where we read about this coming Messiah. But we seem to miss the whole first part, which is here are the problems you have to fix now. The prophets weren't just speaking to them. They were speaking to us. So we have to see how they heard and what they didn't hear what that means in our world. All right, super quick history lesson. I know many of you know this because I love to go over the histories again and again. Okay, Saul, um, David, Solomon, United Kingdom, Rehoboam comes along, says I'm going to raise everyone's taxes. Uh, kingdom splits into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel gets really wealthy, also gets on Assyria's hit list. Assyria takes it out. The ten tribes in the north are spread throughout the empire of Assyria, with some remaining there. We call them Samaritans, and some moving down into Judah and mixing with the people of Judah. 
Judah manages to survive as a client state of Assyria until Assyria falls to Babylon. Babylon and Judah have a couple fights with each other. Babel, it, Judah keeps doing things that it, Babylon doesn't like, and so they take people into exile until at last Judah goes one step too far and is destroyed. And now the nation is in exile. Whew. Now we're up to the days of Daniel. And Daniel is literally reading the writing on the wall. And the writing says, Babylon, you're about to fall. And it happens. And in comes these people known to history as the... And I can never say it even if I look at it. Achaemenid Empire. We call them the Persians because no one likes saying Achaemenids. There's an A-E in the middle of it. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, the Persians come. The Persians take over. The Persians don't have the same problems as the Babylonians, and they are fine with allowing the, the people of Judah, who are in exile, go back to their lands. This is also where we make the transition from Judah, uh, from Judah to Judea and Judahites to Jews. Because at this point, the tribe system has really broken down a lot. There's a lot of intermixing. There's people from all the tribes living in Judah and Judea and swells living all over the world. So they get to go back. And they're led by a man named Zerubbabel. Yeah, there's a name we don't see very often in the Bible because he's only a very short little bit. So Zerubbabel is the son of Jeconiah. Jeconiah is the next to last king. His dad rebelled against Babylon, as they did, and he got killed in a siege. Jeconiah is on the throne for a little bit. Babylon captures him, takes him off, and he lives in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. He's quite happy there, actually. And his, uh, his uncle, um, Zedekiah, is the actual last, pro last king because... He's put on the throne as a puppet, and then he bites the hand that's inside of him. And, uh, well, Judah falls. So, Jeconiah has, sons, has a son, his son has a son, and we get Zerubbabel, whose name is literally born in Babylon. That's what his name means. It's like if I named Gracie Zeru Lancaster. So, he returns. He brings the people back to the nation of their ancestors. He brings the people back to the city in which his ancestor David once sat upon its throne. And he gets there, and everything is in ruins. The cities are gone. The towns are gone. There's farms. There's little villages. But that's it. They get to the city, the walls have been torn out, the houses are in ruins, and God's house is no longer. The great temple of Solomon is gone. Not only is it gone, it has been stripped. All the gold, all the treasures made by, by the early um, Israelites out at Sinai are gone. Well, get to work. They roll up their sleeves, and under Zerubbabel, they begin to build houses. They begin to make businesses. They start to, to rejuvenate the trade routes of Judah. And that's when Haggai comes along. 
Haggai is, is a duo prophet. There's two of them, Zach, Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah is a dreamer. He's one of the future tellers. He sees what's going to happen because God speaks to him in dreams. But Haggai is someone with his eyes wide open, and he sees what's happening. What are you doing, he says. Look up there. You see that? That is the Mount of Zion. That is God's mountain where God's house should be standing. Why are you building your house when God does not have a house? Get your priorities straight. Do you not remember our ancestors? They were out living in the desert and they remembered to build God a house. And when they didn't honor God correctly, things happened. Bad things happened. So Zerubbabel, along with this guy named Joshua, he was the high priest, gather the people together and they walk up the mountain and they begin to build God's house. That should have been the solution, but it actually became the problem. Because they were not the only Jews in Judea. You know, just as I was telling the children, there's two groups. There are the returnees, those who have been in exile and have come back. And there are the Jews that have never left. Think of it from the, the Babylonian point of view. You have taken over an area. You want to, first off, maintain power. So you remove anyone who, re who is an obstacle to you. So nobles, royalty, military leaders, take them all away. Next, you want to make sure that you can support yourself economically. So you remove people with money, like the merchants. You remove artisans, because they can do their work anywhere you put them. You know, you have a stonemason in Jerusalem, he can be a stonemason in Babylon. And you remove the educated folks, so the priests, the scribes, anyone who can read and write, take them all. But if you take absolutely everyone, now you've got empty land. Empty land isn't good for any kingdom. You have to protect it and you make no money off of it. So you leave the farmers, whether they own the land or they were tenants. You leave men who, who fish for food. You leave the men who are shepherds, who run orchards and vineyards, and you leave, you know, anyone like that. They've been there the whole time. They are descendants of David as well. They are descendants of the people who conquered the land under the first Joshua. They were left there. And so they come. They walk into Jerusalem. They walk up to the Temple Mount and they go to Zerubbabel and Joshua and say, brothers, we are so glad. For 70 years, we have languished here. For 70 years, we could not worship the Lord our God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We could not worship him properly. We were not allowed to rebuild the temple. But you, you have been given permission. You are working on it. Let us come and help you build this temple to our Father, the Lord High God Almighty. And Zerubbabel and Joshua look at them and say, uh-uh, get out of here. There had been a transformation. You see, this is when Judaism is really starting to take form where we start seeing the ancient books come into their fullness 
I mean, this is where we start seeing the books that we now put in our Old Testament being written and compiled into single texts instead of stories told here and there and little bits and pieces. And as they did that, they really studied and they drew new conclusions. You see, they were just like their ancestors who were forced into servitude in Jerusalem. I mean, in, I, 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 in Egypt. The same people that God had delivered through Moses. They were the new, new chosen people. They had been get put into exile and they had been delivered from exile. They are now God's chosen people. And these people who are left behind, they are like the Canaanites who had lived in the land since before, since the age of Abraham and before. They were the outsiders now. And so they pushed them away. You are no longer one of us. Yeah, we may have the same grandpas, but you are no longer a part of our family. And they pushed them out of the, the temple, well, out of Jerusalem. Sadly, it gets worse. And by the way, this is all the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Um, it really should be called Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, but apparently people don't like saying the word Zerubbabel. So, we jump forward about 60 years, and Ezra comes. Ezra is a lawyer, a scholar, a rabbi, a teacher of the Torah law. And he's living in Babylon, and he wants to return to Jerusalem as well. He wants to make Jerusalem into the center of holiness that it once was. So he goes to Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia at the time, and Artaxerxes gives him permission. And so he leads people back to Jerusalem. But it's not what he expected. This was the land that was promised to the Jews as the land of milk and honey. But instead, it was the land of soy, milk, and saccharin. Thank you for laughing, whoever that was. Lauren said that was a terrible joke. It's still a terrible joke. He doesn't understand. Why is this so terrible? And he looks around. The, the houses are there, but business is not booming. The fields are there, but they aren't growing as well as they should. And God's temple is there, but the light of God, the Holy Spirit, the, the power of God isn't in it. There's got to be something we did, he thought. So he studied, he thought, he prayed. He went through the books until at last he figured it out. He figured it out from the book of Numbers. And whose fault was it? It was the women's. Seriously, he blames the women. Actually, he blames the men, but it's the women's fault. He read the book of Numbers, and in there is the rules about what you're supposed to do when you, you inhabit the kingdom. And that rule was that you should not marry the people who live there. And so he said, you are the God's chosen people, those who went into the exile and came back out, and you have married the people who are always living here. They are the new Canaanites. You have sinned against God. And he went, and he went to the town's, the town's elders and leaders and convinced them of his, of his belief, 
And they made a proclamation. Any man who is married to a woman who is not a member of the exiles, you must divorce her and kick her and her, quote-unquote, your children out of the house. I am kind of happy to say that not every man listened to him because it didn't happen all that well. But it also shows, just as then they built the temple, it did not return to its full glory. As they tried to purify themselves, they did not make themselves fully pure, at least in the eyes of Ezra. And that's when he's joined by Nehemiah. I'm not going to fully retell Nehemiah's story, but he's an official in, Bab in, in the Persian Empire, and he's allowed to go back and rebuild the walls. That's unusual. Most cities weren't given walls if they didn't need them. You put walls around fortresses, and you put walls around the important places, like the capital. Because what happens when you put a wall around a city? That city can try to kick you out. That's pretty logical, right? That's why you do like what the Romans did. They built a fortress inside the city to control everyone around them. But for whatever reason, Artaxerxes says, go ahead, go build. And so Nehemiah comes and he begins to build, and the people who live in the countryside around don't like it. They don't like this wall going up between them and the people in Jerusalem, between the locals and the returnees. But Nehemiah makes his point at the tip of a spear and pokes them away and continues to build. Finally, the wall is built. The city is restored, business is happening, the temple is there, and Nehemiah and Ezra throw a great celebration. For seven days, all the men gather together outside the temple, and Ezra teaches them Torah. They feast, they celebrate, they sing, they dance. Then they hold the Feast of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacle. Has not been celebrated in 130 years, at least. And then Nehemiah goes. He leaves. He's got to go report to the king. He reports to the king. He comes back. He goes up to the temple. There's somebody using the temple for their own business. He's making money off of it. He goes up to his walls and he looks outside. There are people working outside on the Sabbath. And in fact, his wall has become the backdrop of a Sabbath market. You're not allowed to do any of that. Not at all. He gets really mad. He goes and he throws people out of the temple. He locks the gates so that the, the shopkeepers are forced to stay outside all night. And any man that he finds that has been married to a local girl, he beats them and pulls their hair out. For some of us, that's less painful. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> he ends the book with a plea. He says, Lord, remember me with favor. It seems that Nehemiah recognizes that everything he has done has not worked out as well as it should. And why? Why does it all end up as folly? This is why I have my papers here today, because I'm actually reading straight from scriptures, and I don't memorize them as well. 
Isaiah stated, before all of this happened, what the temple of God would be like when it was rebuilt. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now Haggai, so Isaiah is speaking before the exile. Haggai speaks after the exile while the temple is being built. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, thus says the Lord Almighty. Before and after the exile, it is stated by the prophets that the Lord's temple is not meant for just the people of Jerusalem, but it is a house for all peoples, all nations. It's not just what God wants, but it is the longing of every human heart to be drawn up towards God. And yet, and yet, Zerubbabel decides he gets to make the choice of who can come in and who can't. And Ezra, Ezra demands purity. Purity. Everyone must do exactly as right. The problem is, is Ezra also defines what purity is. Haggai, who's living at the same, I'm sorry, Malachi, who's, who's living at the same time, also is concerned about purity. He wants the people to live pure lives. But what he realizes is it has nothing to do about exactly who you're married to. It has to do about upholding your promises, about living the life that God has called you to. If you make a covenant with God, then you fulfill that covenant. And so while Ezra may say, it is this, Malachi goes, no, no, that's not it at all. You've gone the wrong direction. And last but not least, Zechariah, the dreaming prophet. He has a vision in a dream where, where he, an angel comes to him and says, run, tell that young man Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory within it, declares the Lord. What does Nehemiah do? He builds a wall. He, just like Zerubbabel, who stood at the top and said, you are not allowed in, just as Ezra stood in front and said, they are not allowed to be a part of us, so Nehemiah stands at the gate and says, you can't come into God's city. I know I'm painting these three men in a terrible light. And part of it is because the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it, it's originally one book. We've split it up, but it was originally one book. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah actually paints them in a great light right up until the last chapter. And that's where you realize that they have been mistaken the entire time. 
Because they aren't bad men. They're men who believe. They're men who have passion. They love God. They love the law. They love the scriptures. They want to be good men. But they allow themselves to be tainted by their own beliefs, by the society beliefs, by those around them. They saw themselves as those who had gone through the crucible. They had gone into exile impure, bad followers of God, and they had come out as the good, perfect believers of God. Instead, they had all the same problems. They were all still there. In fact, it was worse because instead of being humbled, they had become haughty. Instead of learning to rely on God, they had learned to rely on themselves first. The prophets spoke to them again and again. The prophets walked with them, literally walked with them. And ultimately, they were ignored, and the city of David was never fully restored. In fact, it wouldn't be until Herod the Great, the guy who wanted to go after baby Jesus, that this temple would reach the glory it once had, if only in appearance. It's a warning to you and me. These people who saw God's hand in their history firsthand, who read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, who had these prophets walking and talking with them, they could not fully embrace God's way. So we must also be careful because it's easy to believe that we have the answers just like they did. And so how do we avoid this? We become people of the mountains and the valleys. Mountains are holy places, places where since the beginning of time, people have gone up to try and talk to that which is greater than them. After all, there's a reason the temple was built atop Mount Zion. We have our own mountains today places where we go to commune with God and one another, to be filled with the Spirit. We call them churches or conferences. I mean, if you ever go to an annual, or, you know, annual conference or a full district conference, it's a place of worship as much as it is a place of business. Of course, camps. Can't ignore that. Literally, mountaintop experiences. but we also need to walk down from the mountain and go into the valley. See, mountains are wonderful places where we can commune with God, with the Holy Spirit, with one another, but down in the valleys is where our fields are, where the work of our lives are, where we get to encounter that there are real problems, that there are locusts in the corn, and we have to figure out real-life solutions. Sometimes that means we have to open ourselves to other people's opinions and stories and realizing that we may not have all the answers. That's where Ken comes in. I got around to him at the very end. So Ken Morse, if his name's not familiar, you have been singing his songs. Every song today was written by Ken Morse. This morning's call to worship was a Ken Morse. I wanted to use the prayer, too, we have of his in the, bio, in the hymnal. Unfortunately, it's really Christmas-themed. 
So maybe it'll make appearance in a couple weeks. Among many things, Ken was the uh, longtime editor of The Messenger. For 35 years, he wrote for the denomination and for much of it as editor of The Messenger. He oversaw as it changed and morphed into the modern magazine it is today, including the era of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where he wasn't afraid to have hard conversations. In fact, in a, a memorial to him, the month after he passed away, Wendy McFadden, who took the position over after he retired, said that she came in and he handed her a giant manila folder. This was a record of every person who was very unhappy with what Ken had decided to publish. Every canceled subscription because Ken was not afraid to talk about hard subjects. Whether it was conscientious objection, racial or gender equality, issues of violence within our churches, nation, and the world, ecumenicalism, and just to name a few. Ken wasn't afraid to open the conversation to lots of different stories, realizing that there is more than one version of any event and that it's only through conversation that we can hear that and grow in it. It's only through conversation that we can stop and question whether the beliefs that we are holding are aligned with God or ourselves. But even as he did that, even as he engaged us in the fields, he engaged us on the mountain, writing beautiful poetry about the relationship of us and the church, but our, our relationship with the risen Christ. And no more is that apparent than in the Brethren Anthem, Move in Our Midst. It's my favorite song, too. I have been just dying to play this one for 13 weeks, and I knew I had to stick it here with this one. I keep a list of how often we sing songs, so I don't make you sing the same one every week. Otherwise, this one would be it. It's maybe the most brethren hymn out there. After all, it reflects mountains and valleys, coming together to worship, calling the Spirit into our lives, and then walking into the world to make that Spirit come alive in it. Please, please open yourself up to that Spirit. We do not get to choose who are the prophets in our world. And we do not get to choose whether they speak to us or not. But we get to choose whether we listen or not. Or whether we say, I don't know about that. Or, God never changes. I don't think God ever changes, but we do. We do. 300 years and 13 weeks, that's how far we have gone. Ken Morris passed away. It feels like 1999 was just yesterday, but it was 21, 22 years ago now. Spirit 
has been moving in us for 300 years, pushing men and women to do things they didn't think possible. The Holy Spirit still moves in us. Do not be complacent in it. Feel it. It is electricity that flows through us even today. So, open yourself up. The Holy Spirit is moving. I don't know where the church will be in 300 years. But if we keep listening, it will keep going. God, please move in our midst. Amen.